This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. We're going to look to God's Word now, so I want to make sure everybody has a copy of the Scriptures. If you're here this morning and you don't have a copy, if you'll raise your hand, our ushers are going to bring you a free copy of the Bible you can take home with you today. Just raise your hand, please, and leave it up, and turn with me when you get that Bible to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. It's in the New Testament, just past the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to begin reading in verse 16 and read down through the end of the chapter. So this is the Apostle Paul in his third missionary journey, and he's going to Athens, not Tennessee. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They had access to the internet, obviously. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man Every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, 
Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. They believed. May God bless his word, and may you believe this morning. I received last week this month's issue of my favorite theological journal, Ranger Rick. It's a kid's magazine made, made by the National Wildlife Federation. The featured article was about zebras, and it was titled, Why Do Zebras Have Stripes? I learned there are actually three different species of zebras. I'm sure you all knew this, which you can tell apart by their patterns of stripes. And I learned that the stripes of zebras are actually like fingerprints on, on us, our fingerprints. No two individual zebras have stripes that are identical. It's all free. You get this information free this morning. But scientists can't really answer the question about why zebras have stripes. They can only guess. So maybe they help them hide in tall grass. I'm not seeing that. I can see a zebra myself in tall grass. Maybe when zebras run together, they think maybe it makes it hard, harder for predators to pick out a single animal. Maybe, this is the latest, flies don't like to, to land on stripes. You know why I think zebras have stripes? I think it's the same reason there are so many beetles in the world. There are 1.75 million species that have been identified by scientists in our world, and more than 20% of them are beetles. There are more than 30,000 different species of beetles. Why? Why are there so many beetles? When asked what his studies of nature had revealed about God, J.B.S. Haldane, the renowned British philosopher, replied, an inordinate fondness for beetles. I think zebras have stripes for the same reason that there are so many beetles. God likes stripes. God made the world and everything in it, including zebras. 
And I think he knew that we would be wowed when we saw a horse with stripes on it because he was wowed. He thought it was cool. That's what I think. I think he has a fondness for stripes. David wrote in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? My three-year-old grandson called last night to say, Grandfather, do you see the moon? I said, oh, yeah, I do, buddy. She's a big one tonight, isn't she? He said, it's yellow. According to the Apostle Paul, God made that yellow moon. And it's amazing. He made the moon, he made the zebras, he made the beetles. And he made you and me so that we might seek him and find him through his son, Jesus Christ. And this morning, we want to focus on Paul's message in Athens. Unpack this this message that the Lord might give us faith and we might be believers in Jesus Christ so that we can seek him, we can find him, and we can worship the one true God. R.C. Sproul was a professor of philosophy and theology, and he says about this speech in Athens that here Paul gave us the most profound statement of ultimate truth ever found in Scripture. Ultimate truth is always applicable, and it's applicable to us today. So here's what we learn in this message. Number one, we are worshipers. Number two, we are made to worship the God who made the world. Finally, we are commanded to repent of false worship and worship this one true God alone. We're all, we're all worshiping something. We're all always in pursuit of something. We're all serving something we worship. We're seeking something to provide us with meaning, something to provide us with purpose, something to give us joy. And there are two options that we have. Either we will worship the true God or we will allow something in creation to take his place. We're not different in this sense from those in first century Athens. Verse 16, Paul's it says, Luke records that Paul was waiting in Athens and his, his spirit, he was provoked inside as he saw that this city was absolutely full of idols. He says in verse 22, I, I perceive you're very religious. That was not a compliment. He's reproving them. He's correcting them. And we have to remember, Athens was was the center of Greek civilization. You've probably studied about it when you took Western Civ along the way. It is known as the cradle of democracy. It's foundational to all Western civilization. 
It's, it's impossible to overstate the impact of this city, its sculpture, its famous, its literature, its philosophy especially. It was a leading city. It was the native city of Socrates and Plato. Aristotle moved there because it was such a great city. Think of it as just the greatest of university cities filled with artistic beauty, statues of Greek gods, architectural magnificence in its temples. And and so, so many people just came to Athens and they would have been in awe of its magnificence. They would have been aware of its culture and the significance of the culture there. And they would have just been in awe, just mesmerized as they walked around this city. But Paul, on the other hand, walks into the city and he is beside himself with grief. He saw what was behind the culture. This city was given over to idolatry. The people in first century Athens were worshipers. Idolatry was everywhere, and everyone was involved in idolatry, the worship of idols. And so Paul's spirit is provoked because, as one commentator said, this city was submerged in idols. Every building had some god or goddess on it. He was was used to seeing idolatry in other cities, but Athens was different. It was so pervasive. All kinds of gods were worshipped. Athena, that was the patron goddess of Athens. Zeus, Apollo, Nike, Pluto, Vulcan, Eris, the god of war, or in in Romans would have called it Mars. That's why we read about the Areopagus and call it Mars Hill. It's the god of war hill. They worshiped Rome. They worshiped Caesar. They worshiped seemingly everything. And so this entire magnificent city was devoted, absolutely passionate about the worship of false gods. And Paul was a man who was passionate about the glory of the one true God. He loved the one true God, and he simply reacted the same way the one true God reacts about God replacements. He was jealous, like God is jealous for his glory and his greatness. So verse 17 says, he went to the synagogue, he went to the devout persons, he talked to them about this, but then he also went to the marketplace the hub of urban life, where all the idolaters were, where there was commerce and trade, and people were sharing ideas. It was well known that Socrates himself would go into the marketplace just to see if anybody wanted to talk. How would you like to have gone and talked with Socrates? I'd have felt very dumb. I would have avoided him. I'm street smart. But Paul was... Like Socrates, he was going to the marketplace, but, but he was 
engaging the people of Athens with something new. He was proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. They had not heard that from their philosophers. He went to share the gospel. He wanted to engage them. He wanted to lead them to Christ. By way of application, I think that's what that's certainly what I want to do today, but I also believe that's what God wants to do. But some responded. Look how they responded. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him, and, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That was a technical word for kind of shysters that would come in and they'd pick up little pieces of information from other speakers, and then they'd kind of sell it as their own. So they insulted him, called him a babbler. Some would say, you know, he seems to be a preacher of some sort of foreign divinity. Because he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Epicurean and Stoic philosophy was the two most popular schools of philosophy in Athens at the time. The Epicureans, they were known for their pursuit of happiness and contentment. They, they denied that God was involved in his world, that he would intervene in any way in human affairs. They, they did not believe he punished sin. They criticized all the religion in, in Athens because everybody taught those kinds of things. They said, death is nothing to us. The Stoics, they thought the whole human race was one they, they sought to live in harmony with the natural order. They believed in the logos, a divine principle. And so you can see that Paul is attempting to connect with them. He's trying to find little pieces of truth that he can connect with, establish some common ground. But then he goes back to Jesus and the resurrection. They brought him to the Areopagus. This was, it was a hill, but there was also a, a, a governing body for the city that was, took its name from the hill. And they brought him to this group, and, and the group said to him, these men, they said, may we know what this new teaching is, verse 19, that you're presenting. For you, you bring some strange things can you imagine how strange this sounded? We wish to know, what, what do these things mean? And the people of Athens, Luke records, all they did was just sit around and talk about new things. And so they were interested in this. Some wanted to hear more. They were curious. And he begins by correcting them. He talks about their objects of worship. He, he, he says... You're, you're very religious, but then he fixes his attention on this one altar to the unknown God. And he proclaimed to them the news about a resurrected man by whom God would judge the world. And he called on them to repent of their idolatry. Why? One of the greatest philosophers, American philosophers, was Jonathan Edwards. And writing in the 18th century, he says this, 
The general reason people are God's enemy is that God is opposite to them in the worship of their idols. Now this is 1800s. The apostasy of man similarly consists in departing from the true God to idols, forsaking his creator and setting up other things in his room. When man fell, he departed from the true God and the union that was between his heart and his creator was broken. He wholly lost his principle of love to God. And henceforth, man cleaved to other gods. It's what we do. We are worshipers. He gave that respect to the creature, which is due to the creator. He worshiped the creature, creation, instead of God. When God ceased to be the object of his supreme love and respect, other things, of course, became the objects of it. Man will necessarily have something that he respects as his God. If man does not give his highest respect to the God that made him, there will be something else that has the possession of it. Men will either worship the true God or some idol. It's impossible that it should be otherwise. We are prone to worship false gods, which makes me question the wisdom of an egg hunt. I heard about the egg hunt yesterday. When my wife came home, Sherry said she, she just met just this wonderful family that had taken in a little foster baby and were caring for it. She, she said, I felt like I was sitting among angels. I thought, wow, must have been a great egg hunt. But then I talked to the pastors this morning, and I heard about the golden egg. One kid came up to one of the pastors and said, look, I found the golden egg, but I dropped it. And then this other kid found it, and now I want you to go to that kid and tell him to give me my golden egg. Being a good, terrified, cowardly pastor, he said, I think I need to go. Then I heard about one dad whose kid found the golden egg, and he's streaming it live on social media. We found the golden egg! If you don't worship the one true God, <laughs> we make an exchange. We are worshipers, and we will either worship him or something in creation. The second thing we learn in Paul's message, the ultimate truth is we are made to worship the God who made the world. His message to these men of Athens is that they have one true creator and they have a purpose. Makes sense. If you have a creator, you have a purpose. And they're going to be held accountable to fulfill that purpose. He, he observed all their statutes and altars and he camps out on this one to the unknown God. And he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. That is the consistent teaching of the whole Bible. God made the world. God made everything in the world. God made you. 
And we are made to worship the God who made us, who made this world. You worship all these gods and goddesses, he's telling them. And they're no gods at all. I want to tell you about the God who made heaven and earth. This is the God that all the people in every nation in all the earth find the source of their life and breath. He's the author. He's the creator. He is involved in life. Ancient philosophers were concerned about the questions of life. What is life? So this would appeal to them. And he, Paul knew this. Where does life come from? How is it sustained? What happens when it ends? It's the same questions we're still answering. Contemporary philosophers and scientists are still trying to answer these questions. They say life is an accident. They are not open to discussion. Life began because of chance. Nothing began life. And life ends in nothingness. That's the dogma of our culture. And they leave no room for discussion. These are scientific facts. 40 years ago, I was in a, a class at the University of Tennessee for biological sciences, for a math class. And the teacher was a great teacher. He was an evolutionary biologist, and they were having a debate on campus 40 years ago between creation people and evolutionists. And I remember the professor standing in front of the class and saying, evolution is a fact. And he was angry, and he never got angry, but he was angry. Steve Fuller, who's a professor in England, he is not a Christian. He would say, he would describe himself as a, an, an agnostic, a seeker. He says this, from cosmology to biology, it is becoming increasingly clear that science's failure to explain matters at the most fundamental level is at least in part due to an institutional prohibition on intelligent design as one of the explanatory options. Today, science enjoys an unprecedented authority. Our world resembles the one faced by the Protestant reformers in that people today are often discouraged because of the authority of science from testing their faith in its claims that God made the world by considering the evidence for themselves. Instead, they're meant to defer to the authority of academic experts who function as a secular clergy. That's, he's not a Christian. I just want to call on you to rage against the machine. <laughs> Come on, get your Bob Dylan albums out and let's protest. Let's test this stuff. You can't tell me why zebras have stripes. I say God made the world. Douglas Axe has his doctorate from Caltech. He's held research positions at Cambridge. He's smarter than you. Here's what he says. As long as proponents of evolution continue to claim 
that genius wasn't needed for earth to become populated with these remarkable living things we see around us. They set themselves up for refutation. Piece of cake. That's what he's saying. And he wrote this book, Undeniable, How Biology Confirms Our Intuition That Life is Designed. I won't read the rest of the quote because we'll be here till tomorrow if I do. But the point is that when scientists become philosophers and go beyond science and tell you life happened by accident, argue with them. Paul says, ultimate truth is, life wasn't an accident. It wasn't by chance. You know that. My three-year-old grandson knows that. Did you see the moon? David said his fingers made it. The second thing Paul tells him in verse 24 is he's Lord of heaven and earth. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. He's involved. He determines their appointed time. This God that we're called to worship that made the heavens and the earth is involved. He is the God of providence. He made the world and everything in it. He gives everything life. Notice these everythings. He gives everything needed for life. He made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. There's one God, and he's this all-encompassing Lord and King of heaven and earth. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. That's ultimate truth. Psalm 135, I know that the Lord is great. And that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He determined the end of Greek dominion. He determined the end of the Roman Empire. He made the nations. He rules the world. America doesn't fear God, but according to Paul, the ultimate truth is that God appoints nations, determines their boundaries, their times, and he will determine how long America will serve as the leader of the world. Our nation should fear God. There's a famous 19th century Baptist missionary named Adoniram Judson. Great guy. Amazing guy. Loved to preach the good news about Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. But when he went off to college, he was raised in a godly home. He was lured away from the faith by a student named Jacob Eames, who was a deist, not a Christian. By the time he finished college, he had no Christian faith. He broke his parents' hearts when he announced to them, I've left the faith. And he was going to go to New York and team up with some vagabond actors and, and write for the theater. And he did that. And it was so disgusting. And you see the hand of providence in his life because he, he became attached to these guys that were thieves, they, they weren't noble, and he, he, he could tell this. It was a remarkable 
providence. And then he went to visit his, his uncle. But his uncle wasn't there, and instead, there was a young Christian man who was firm and solid in his Christian convictions. But he wasn't legalistic and mean. Adoniram liked him. It affected him. And it was strange. It was God's providence that he found him there and not his uncle. The next night, he went to a small village inn. He'd never been there before. The innkeeper gave him a room but apologized and said, there's a sick man right beside you. He may keep you up. All through the night, he kept hearing people coming and going in and out of the room. He heard low voices. He heard the man groaning and gasping. It bothered him. He thought about the man. Was he prepared to die? And then he started thinking about what's he prepared to die. When he was leaving the next morning, he asked if the man next door to him was doing better, and the innkeeper just said he's dead. Adoniram Judson was, was struck by this. It affected him. He said, do you happen to know his name? Yeah. He's a young man from the college in Providence, Brown University, where Adoniram went. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames, the deist that had harmed his faith. God not only made heaven and earth, he's governing heaven and earth. We are made to worship him. He provides what we need. Finally, ultimate truth is that we are commanded to repent of false worship and worship him alone. We are commanded to repent of all false worship, all idolatry, and worship him alone. Paul still is going to the marketplace. He's preaching the resurrection. He says the ultimate truth is that God, the one true God, can only be found and truly known through faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. This man is unique. There's been a search going on in Athens. They're looking for God but he condemns all the idolatry. They don't know the true God. He's calling them to go on a new search. In verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now that's over. He commands all people everywhere to repent. God's been patient. He's put up with idolatry. He's allowed the building of these buildings, these magnificent buildings. He's allowed the building of the altars, all the statutes that honor the false gods. But that's done now. And Paul has come and he is preaching the truth that God is now commanding. Verse 30, he commands. This is not an invitation. You can turn down invitations. This is a summons. This is a subpoena. We were created to seek God, 
We were created to have a genuine relationship with him as our creator. And we will be judged. Verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God judges the world, and that's going to come to an ultimate expression on the last day, which is known in the New Testament as the day of Christ, because he is the judge. He has an extraordinary role that God has given him. Who's up for this? Jesus Christ and him alone. You can turn down this morning the call of the gospel, but you can't get away from the consequences. God commands you to become a Christian. There are no other options according to ultimate truth found in this word. There, there aren't many ways to God. When I was an undergraduate, I had a speech class and the speech teacher said the last speech of the class was to be something related to whatever career we were going into. And I said, well, I'm going to be a minister. Does that mean I can preach a sermon? And she said, yes. And I preached the sermon. I preached the gospel to my class. And when I got done, she was very kind. She had nice things to say, but she said, Bill, you just need to learn one thing, there are many ways to God. I could have responded by saying, says who? I kept my mouth shut and I got an A on the speech and an A in the class. <laughs> the ultimate truth is there are not many ways to God. God commands all men, every nation, every culture, every generation to repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. This wasn't popular in Athens in the first century. It's not popular today in our culture. I'm sure it's not popular with several of you in this room, if not many of you. But it's what the truth is. We need to know this. He's appointed today on his calendar, God has, in which he is going to judge the world. It won't be unfair. He will judge the world by this man that he has appointed, Jesus Christ, and him raised from the dead. It won't be Buddha. It won't be Muhammad. It won't be Confucius. It won't be Oprah. It won't be President Trump. He will judge the world by the man, Jesus Christ. He is the judge of all men. And he has given us an assurance by raising him from the dead. You have to understand that at the time Paul was preaching in Athens, there were people who knew Christ, who saw him killed, and saw him raised. At one point, he, he appeared to 500 people at one time. He appeared to the man preaching this message. And many of these people were killed for this truth. It's a historical fact. 
He was raised from the dead. God's given us assurance, and we are proclaiming it to you today. Seek God, find God, and worship the one true God through Jesus Christ. When they heard this, verse 32, there's a mixed reaction. There always is. Some mocked. They sneered. Raised from the dead. Others said, we'll listen again. And others believed. Even someone on this governing body, the Areopagus. Even a, a woman of high standing believed. Oh, we want you to believe this morning. We want you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to repent and come to him for forgiveness of all your sins so that you might find God and know him and experience true and lasting joy. But if you don't believe this morning, at least hear us again. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you this morning. What a joy, Lord. Easter Sunday is. We love Easter Sunday, Lord. We love to talk about Jesus Christ and Him raised from the dead. So thank you, Lord. We come in Jesus' name to our Holy Father, and we thank you for His sacrifice, and we thank you that you have given us an assurance you've raised Him from the dead for our justification. Because of Him, Lord, we are declared righteous. We're accepted by God all our sins are forgiven. What we don't deserve has happened. We know the one true God, our creator, the maker of heaven and earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.